0: I'm Julie Lamb, a therapist turned life and business coach. In all my years as a therapist and coach, I have seen that true healing and growth comes from understanding your greatest asset, your brain. To manage your life and business, you first have to manage your mind. I'm here to help you figure out what the hell is my brain doing? Hello, my friends, and welcome back to what the hell is my brain doing? I'm really excited about today's guest. And I am really excited because of some of my own experience I've gone through. Before we get into introducing her, I just want to share that this topic is so, it's not talked about enough. Okay, So as we talk about these things and you are just becoming aware, all I ask is that your brain is open to, could this be something I'm dealing with? Could this be something that I need to be aware of? And if it is, then what are the steps that I need to take? So with all my episodes, I ask, that's what we do. Just take an open mind to everything. So with that, I am so pleased to bring on my guest, Alyssa Hall. I've known her for a long time. And every time I interact with her, I get more and more amazed. Like I just, her knowledge, her understanding, her depth is truly so warm, loving and compassionate. And so I am so excited to bring her here. She is an anti-racism consultant and a leadership coach. Thank you, Alyssa, for being here today and welcome to the podcast.
1: Yes. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super, super excited about our conversation today.
0: No, You have so much information to share that I just, I was like, we got to jump in here. So Alyssa, how about you tell everybody about you and kind of how you got into the kind of coaching that you do?
1: Yes. So um, as you mentioned, I'm an anti-racism consultant and a leadership coach. I had wanted to jump into coaching from the lens of being a career transition coach. That was what I thought I was going to do. And then I got my first client and I was like, wow, I actually, I don't care about this at all. Like this is not... (laughs) I care about. And then I was like, you know what? I'm a mom. I love like trying to get moms to like break out of mom guilt, do that thing. So I transitioned into that. And I was doing that for a while. And I was super passionate about it. But then in June 2020, after George Floyd was murdered, that for me shifted everything. I was like, okay, uh, let me just take a break from this mom coaching thing. I actually, I can't even think enough to try to like create content because this just doesn't feel important to me right now. And I was like, but the online world is like the online business world looks like they're flailing. Like everyone is just like having a heart attack and flailing. And I was just like, okay, I didn't know that everyone was just so unaware. And I don't say that in a place of judgment. I say that in a place of like, oh, oh my gosh, I did not realize this. Let me help these people out. Let me, and I went on like Facebook Live every single day, just like trying to help people through this because it was just alarming to see. And I usually talk about that as like the beginning of me doing this work professionally. But in regards to this work being a present focus in my life, I feel like I have been paying attention to these things since I was maybe about a teenager. And for since y'all can't see me on, <laughs> on the podcast, I am a dark-skinned Black woman. I'm African-American and I am Cuban. And so for me, when I started looking at things like inclusivity and equity, I have this one memory of visiting my grandfather in the hospital, He, uh, my Cuban grandfather, and it was in a predominantly Latinx neighborhood. And so the patients were predominantly immigrants, people who didn't speak fluent English, but like the nurses and the doctors were mostly American. This was Columbia Presbyterian. And I remember going to visit him one day and my grandparents spoke English, not a hundred percent like they used to when they were younger, but they, they spoke English. Uh, My mom is fluent. I'm clearly fluent. So when we would go to visit my grandfather, there were never any issues, but I would notice that the like, you know, the hospital roommate that he had, had an extremely different experience. And that person didn't have the family of advocates that I feel like my grandfather had. And instead, he would get such a different experience from the nurses, the nurses would get very frustrated with him because they didn't speak Spanish, he didn't speak English, and they would interact with him in a way of just treating him like a child who's not complying. And at the time, I had wanted to be a doctor. And I was like, you know what? when I go to college, I'm going to major in Spanish translation. I'm fluent in Spanish, but I'm not like professionally fluent <laughs> in Spanish. And I was like, I'm going to be the most fluent doctor that works here because these patients deserve that. They don't want to be here. They're not trying to to be here. They're not trying to be annoying, but that's how they're being treated. And I feel like that was the moment that really opened my eyes to inequity and inclusivity, even though a hospital, they're going to take everyone as long as they got the insurance money to pay for it. That in a blanket statement sounds like inclusivity, Mm
0: -hmm. but
1: are they being treated the same? Are they allowed to thrive in the same way that someone who maybe speaks fluent English is able to thrive? Most likely not. So that for me was like, (laughs) <laughs> my first moment of really paying attention to the world in this way. You know, as you talk about that, I just think about my education
0: in social work and how we mm-hmm. we definitely talk about advocating for those that are more disadvantaged and, you know, those that don't have that voice. And I feel like sometimes I, I know this is the wrong word, but like privileged to have had that experience to understand mm-hmm. that not everybody is like me. And it's okay to open my eyes and to see what that looks like. And even with that education, that knowledge, it's still very different than when you're actually faced with that situation. And I think this whole experience that you talk about, I think is really part of that larger conversation. You know, it's part of the conversation Mm -hmm. where it's like, yeah, I can study about it. I can learn about this, but it isn't until we actually are in that situation that we might understand more. And even then I said that might, because we are so different in so many ways. To me, that's what makes everything beautiful, but to other people, that's what makes it scary. Because it's like, we're different. We're, I don't know how to interact with that. I love that story. And I want to go back to the moment that this kind of became a thought for you it was like, I need to help people build them, lift them, whatever needs to happen, but also to support those that are on their own journey of, I'm going to call it reawakening of, mm-hmm. of everything. And the term that we're going to use as we talk about this is kind of our unconscious bias. Mm -hmm. And so I actually, Alyssa has heard my story and I want to share my story about why I actually really felt like she needed to come on because just as I mentioned that, you know, I've studied this, I've learned, you know, you help people and you are very open. I went into a Costco on a Friday night and this wasn't even that long ago. It was just fairly recently, but I went into this Costco and as I walked in, I happened to notice a group of women that were around each other. And they were, you could, they were clearly Muslim wearing the the hijab. And I had a momentary thought where it was like, Oh, it, it startled me. The thought was like, uh, am I, am I okay? And it was a real, like for me, almost a jolting experience. And I share this really very vulnerably because I have lots of emotions we're going to talk about through this too. But it got me thinking about the fact that, Oh, like, why am I thinking this way? like what what's happening here I am I'm I love people we're all inclusive like this is great but my unconscious bias came out in that moment. And so, so I would love to know like this unconscious
1: bias, how do we define this? What does this really look like and mean? Yes, and I just you know, want to applaud you again for sharing your story and using it as like this teachable moment because as we talk about like, okay, what do we do from here? We definitely have to like go back to your story because there's always that thing of like, well, it's unconscious, so I don't know what to do. And from your own self-awareness, being able to be like, well, oof, that was a thought that I had. Mm -hmm. Hmm, Where did that come from? That is a step that we're not, you know, like trained to do. We just have our thoughts in our head and we just, you know, take actions off of those thoughts (laughs) and call it a day. And that's how these things remain unconscious.
0: Yeah. And as you were talking about all of those experiences that you had, you obviously had very conscious things going on that can create the biases. So let's, Define for us a little bit what's the difference between like an unconscious bias, and I actually want to bring in the word prejudice as well, to maybe even conscious
1: bias. Like walk me through that spectrum of thought processes. So I think what is also just important to to highlight too, when we think about unconscious bias, a lot of times it's in the context of what we're talking about now, like a negative thought that we have about a person, or not even a thought, because it's just a negative way that our brain is thinking about a thing. That's causing us to behave in a way, but yeah. there's also biases on the positive end. And I want to just like say that too. Like I'm not saying good, bad, like, oh, this, bi- this type of bias is good. This type of bias is bad. I'm talking about the way that we're perceiving the thing that we're mm-hmm. thinking about is in a positive light or yeah. a negative light. So for example, one type of bias, I think it's called, um, affinity bias. And that is when we tend to feel comfort, safety or connection with something or someone that relates to us in some type of way, whether it be like, Oh, this person went to the same university that I did. Therefore I feel some type of connection or trust with that person. Right. Or oh. this person looks like my auntie. So therefore I default feel some type of connection or trust towards this person. Right. And I think. The type of bias that we're really talking about today that is usually the forefront of the conversation is more of like a confirmation bias. And Mm -hmm. that is when we have this, I I always call it like a seed, like a seed has been planted and we don't really know that the seed has been planted. We may not even know that it's there, Mm -hmm. right? But then we see experiences in the world that give weight to that seed, that give evidence to that seed and then therefore causes us to see people in a different light or assume something about a group of people. And a lot of times when you're talking about like prejudice, right, it's about a negative and most of the time, like not based in actual heavy fact, thought or view about a particular group of people. So I feel like that was like a whole bunch. So I'll pause there. (laughs) (laughs) No,
0: it's so true. And I really appreciate that you talked about how biases are both positive and negative because Mm -hmm. we hear the word bias and we think, oh, that must be negative. But just as you mentioned, if you are more comfortable, the affinity bias, if I'm more comfortable with somebody of the same religion, race, Mm -hmm. economic standard, like it doesn't matter. That means that I might trust that those aren't necessarily negative. When it becomes negative is just, as you said, we have the experience and then we continue to build on it. And so then we take a positive or negative experience and do the same thing. And the more that I build upon it, then the more that I basically become prejudiced. And I think it's good to also look and say, sometimes prejudice is the same thing. It's good Mm -hmm. and bad. Like just because I may like a particular food and I am like prejudiced against other foods, it doesn't mean that that's a bad thing but it's mm-hmm. when i it's what i do with that prejudice that i always think is really important that part of the conversation and so going back to even my story i said it shocked me because again i was like no 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 i i don't have any biases i mean come on guys we first have to recognize that <laughs> yes we all have biases <laughs> yes i was so shocked by the thought that i even had of oh is this is this okay cuz it they were just, they're just like any other group of women together. And there was nothing wrong with what was going on. It was just a momentary thought that kind of reinforced sometimes some fears that I've had in the past. And I love how you said it's not necessarily based on experiences. It's just based upon things that I may have thought or things that I may have been around and the fears that come because I'm going to say honestly, sometimes the I don't understand or somebody has told me I should be afraid of this. And so therefore, I perpetuate that bias, even if I think I don't.
1: Yes. And I, I think too, like later on in the conversation we'll be talking about like, okay, now that y'all understand all this, what to do. Yeah. Um, and I think it's also important to remember too, even with the affinity bias where we feel comfort, trust, whatever it is with something that is familiar to us, that also can turn into a negative in terms of just like, I'll just use the fridge example of like the food that you like. <laughs> like, one day I, like, I don't even know the type of food that you like, but let's say one day I go to your house and all you have is, like, cheese in the fridge. Like, that's it. It's just cheese. And there might be, like, you know, a loaf of bread here. Maybe there's some eggs, but... Every single meal, you're trying to figure out another way to use that cheese because in your brain, like that's the best food in the world and it makes you feel happy and comfortable. And all those other types of foods, you kind of have to figure out how to incorporate it into your diet. And it takes a lot of work and just, I don't want to do that. Let me just, I'll stick with the cheese. But then every time you look in your fridge, you're like, why is there so much cheese in here? I know I, I know that that whole foods has more than just cheese, right. but I just keep coming home with cheese. I don't understand what's going on. And this example is, I use it as a visual, (laughs) just like when we think about the people that we surround ourselves with, whether it be in our personal or professional life, it can create an overabundance of a homogenous group. Because we constantly find ways to find trust or community in people that are like us. So then people who are outside, it's super hard for there to be any type of diversity in any type of sense because we are so default to the thing that is comfortable to us. I really like that
0: analogy too, because we get used to something and we Mm. don't actually question like why I have so much cheese until a friend comes over that's lactose intolerant. And right. then, and then they go, I can't eat anything that you have because it doesn't fit within my narrative. And right. I think that that is this food analogy is kind of a way that we just are used to something until somebody opens our eyes and is like, there could be another way. There could be another possibility. And I even like to go the step further. The friend that said, Hey, I'm lactose intolerant isn't sitting there saying what you think is wrong. Right. What you do is bad. They're just saying, Hey, What if we didn't have cheese and instead we had a salad? Like, could we do that instead? And Mm -hmm. they just introduced me to a potential new way of thinking, a new way of looking at things. And so I love this idea of how we can normalize some of these conversations because I'm going to be honest. I don't know about anybody else, but sometimes this is uncomfortable. Like I felt really, really uncomfortable sharing my story because I don't want at all to be viewed as bias, prejudice, whatever words we want to use. I don't want that. But I really was like, you know what, though, I need to have this conversation because it was something that made me think like, why did my brain go there? What's going on here? And if we're afraid to have the conversation, I think all it does is put us in a deadlock. Like we're not able to actually have this and move this forward. And so I'd love your perspective on that as well.
1: I call that little thing like the shame guilt spiral. And it's usually triggered by an event. So let's say a thing happens either in your personal life, in the world, whatever, and then you're reminded of whether it be your bias or you're maybe reminded of something that's important to you that you may not be acting on, whatever it is. That then triggers shame. Mm -hmm. Then you're like, oh my gosh, I'm a terrible person because that's what you're making that mean. Then that triggers guilt. Then for some people, they end up doing the absolute most to try to remove this label that they've put on themselves, Mm -hmm. to try to prove to themselves and maybe to other people that they're not a bad person, that they're not whatever it is that they've told themselves. But when we're overextending ourselves, what then happens? We then burn out, Mm -hmm. right? I don't know about y'all, but when I burn (laughs) out, that thing goes to the side and I'm just like, it's too painful and uncomfortable to even look at this thing, no matter how important it is for me. Mm -hmm. And then it just sits there on the back burner until another event triggers the thought or triggers the thing that's important. And we go through the entire cycle all over again. You know, for all of you, though, that are familiar with this, we've talked about this
0: before in different ways, whether it's our cognitive dissonance, when we've got an idea that suddenly conflicts with how we act whether it's a belief that we suddenly want to change and how the old things are going to come up all the time. And I had somebody ask me, they're like, well, will I ever be done <laughs> like changing? <laughs> and I was like, I wish I could say, yes, absolutely. On this day, you will be done and you will be like the best version. But it just doesn't work that way because of just like you talked about how we, we go along and we feel like we're doing good and something else is going to come along. And then we Mm -hmm. deal with that for a little bit and then this thing will come back up again and we may be okay for a while and then it comes up and it's worth the conversation to be able to say, okay, wait a minute here. I had this feeling. I had this thought and then to pause and say, now, what do I want to do with it? And I think the pausing is what's not done too often. Mm -hmm. It is that gut reaction, that move forward. And I tell everybody, I don't like to get very political, but I'm going to get political here for a moment. This is a problem we see everywhere. Mm -hmm. And I told Alyssa, part of the reason too, I wanted to bring her on is because I feel helpless in what can I do? Because I am passionate about helping people. (laughs) I am passionate about people feeling like their voice is heard. This is something I really strive to do. And so because I feel like sometimes I'm powerless, it's very easy to then hear these stories where people truly are powerless. Like I will admit, like I'm not I have more power than I think I do. But when I hear about people that truly don't have the power and have truly been hurt because of the negative biases, this is when I say the conversation needs to be had. We have to talk about it because kids should not be hurt. Those that are Mm -hmm. not like me should not be hurt. Like that needs to end.
1: I love just trying to normalize this conversation because what I described is really just a, a cycle and it's a cycle that if we are really conscious of it and we are proactive about it, we can break that cycle and continue to take action in a way that actually feels good, but we can break this constant shame, guilt. Oh, I'm a terrible person. Oh my God. This is overwhelming shame, guilt. Oh my God. Like we don't have to keep going through that. And a lot of it is really removing that shame and guilt from the equation. Yeah. Once we normalize like this is pretty normal based off of just the world that we live <laughs> in today. Right? Like we have to acknowledge that the seed was planted somewhere. We didn't go inside our brain and like firmly plant the seed ourselves and go, ha, I did, I did, I did something today. (laughs) I I did a thing. (laughs) Yes. Like, no, that seed is planted through whether it be a actual conversation with somebody, whether it be through something that we've seen. And then the way that that plant grows is through things that almost confirm that seed's thought. Mm -hmm. And if we neutralize it from that way, then we can take action from a more empowered place instead of just this, let me not feel terrible anymore kind of place. Um,
0: And I really love this idea that if we take away the shame and guilt and we're able to just say, you know what, this is how I may have thought before and I'm ready to change it. I'm ready to acknowledge that maybe there's a better way of thinking. Maybe there's a better way of doing things. Like maybe there is a different way. And I would love to know like, when I get to that point, what should I do? Like, what are some things that would be very helpful for somebody along that journey?
1: I think there are like, one of the major important steps is to understand that this particular bias, confirmation bias is based off of like evidence confirming that thought that we have. And so if we are going to try to believe something else and no longer give that thought weight, it's about doing the exact opposite at first, right? At first, we need to say, like the example that I use a lot with my clients is like fat phobia, this core C that we've been implanted with fat equals bad fat equals terrible, all the terrible things. Right. And if we are going to not believe that anymore, we have to acknowledge that we need to be active in that. So for my own internal like journey, it was like, how do I feel comfortable with myself? How do I just love the way that I naturally look? And it was about not associating fat with ugly. And I don't think that about anyone else, but I sure as hell think that about myself. And so I had to then spin that and say, well, well th- where are the examples of my version of what fat looks like? And my version of fat means the fat girl wearing the crop tops and the cleavage and the short shorts and the body con dresses. That's my style. How can I see that and see it in a way of just like, oh my gosh, she looks really, really good. Yeah. <laughs> where do I get that evidence? And I had to like... I did a complete overhaul of just who I was looking at on social media and being super intentional with who I was looking at and finding like all these different ranges of body types that are all my style yeah. so that I can see myself in it and instead make it so that, oh, that thought that I had of fat equating to ugly, there's actually now mountains of evidence that that thing is wrong. And now that's no longer a core thought for myself. Yeah. Does
0: that... Absolutely. And we've talked about these thought errors that we have where we put it on a blanket on everybody. Everybody must be this way, this all or nothing type of thinking. And the minute that you can just do that one thing, be like, okay, I'm going to take this one thought and I'm going to say, okay, wait a minute here. What do I actually really want to think about it? And what evidence can I find out there that would support it? So I think that's one of the first things is all of us have to say, okay, I'm going to take this thought out. And I'm actually going to go back to this experience I had and you know, I have this thought and it came out and I was like, oh, I, I don't actually want to think this. Like, I don't want to feel this fear. Basically. I don't want to feel that now how I felt. Hey, that's fu- it's fine. It's not a problem because I didn't do anything. And I think that's key. I didn't do anything. So instead I'm going to go back and I'm gonna say, okay, i got this thought. And then I'm gonna say, okay, what confirmation do I have that this actually really isn't a problem? And so that's when I go into all religions. They're all different. They all have different thoughts. Okay. Is that a problem? Well, it might be, not be, you know, and then I have to go further there. But we're going to say for this instance, like, no, it's actually not. And then I'm going to say, what interactions have I had with other people that are Muslims? And I actually have had the fortune of going to Egypt, which is a Muslim country, and being around a lot of some wonderful people that confirm to me that actually there's a lot of really good people. And I can look at that and say, now I have some confirmation that this is actually good, right? And I can look at that. If I don't have that experience, just like you said, I maybe go to social media. Maybe I go look there. And there's some great examples there. I think with the same thing, there are some bad examples. And if I want to find it, I'm going to find it. And I think Uh that's really the key is you have to decide what do I want to believe? And can I go find the evidence to support that instead of finding the evidence that takes me away from that thought?
1: Yes. Yes. And then I think too, this is where I see like a lot of people getting tripped up. It's this understanding of we don't exist in a silo. I can sit here and change the thoughts in my brain all day long. But then I have to remember that those same pieces of evidence that fueled that original thought, those same pieces of evidence still exist in the world, right? So thinking about like the the fat phobia example, right now I am a size extra large. And if I like go online and I see these cute little boutiques and I see that they only have small, medium, large, that then triggers the thought again for me of just like, you see, that is bad. I am bad. I need to change myself in order to wear these clothes, right? Or if I do go into a store and they do have extra large and then the the, the sizing and the clothing is just gross, mm-hmm. that again, triggers the thought that there is something wrong with me compared to being super aware of like, okay... This is a societal issue. Where in the grandeur of society am I getting the evidence to constantly try to remind me that fat is bad? Where am I getting that evidence? Once I get clear on what those things are, then I can make a different meaning about them. Now, when I look at the boutiques, I'm just like, yeah, it's 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 not a me problem it's a them problem. They yeah. just <laughs> they just decide not to go farther than large. They're going to lose a lot of money and that sucks for them, right? Or when I go into a store and maybe the plus size clothing is ugly or like something for someone who's 45 and I'm 30 mm-hmm. or maybe it's something that's like Ill fitting. Like, I can't even shop at Express. I tried on so many clothes at Express and I was just like, this is not a me problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, this is a them problem. And yeah. when I'm able to reframe all the triggers that the world has placed for me, that is when I'm going to be able to more powerfully stand in that. Because at the end of the day, those triggers are there to reinforce those thoughts. But if I just stay in my own head, I'm not going to notice when those triggers are pushing that button for me.
0: I love this. This is why I really hate toxic positivity that goes around
1: mm-hmm. because
0: I don't care. I've said this before. You can tell me to think positive all you want, <laughs> but the fact still remains that I have about 80% of my thoughts are negative. That mm-hmm. is actually what's going on in my brain. And so if I'm always focused there, I will find it. If I can reframe things to say, okay, wait, well, if I wanted to think differently or just believe that, and I say this to a lot of my clients, that sounds like a them problem and not a me problem, right? Yes. It's a you problem, not me problem. And I think that that's where you have to look at this and say, this isn't a divisive thing. This isn't me being like, okay, that's a them. That is more of a, I'm not even going to listen. I think it's more of a, oh, as a whole, society is going to tell me this. And that sounds like that's a society thing. It's not a personal thing. And I think that's the key we want to look at is it's not a, I'm blocking whole like people themselves. I'm saying society as a whole has this thought and it's a problem. Mm -hmm. And I don't want that problem. I want a different problem. I want a different (laughs) thought. Something else. Those
1: thoughts are still going to be there. The biases are still going to be there. It's just what I choose to do with it moving forward. Exactly. That's really the the major thing is understanding that however long that we've been on this planet, we've been getting the messaging for all of these core things because that's the way that our society is currently structured, right? It's currently structured for classism and fat phobia and sexism and racism. All of these things are just within the fabric of our society, And have created the norms that we see all the time. So it's wild of us to feel like, okay, I'm just going to think something different today by myself. And it's just like, (laughs) how long have you been here? Throughout (laughs) that entire time that you've been here, you've been told and given evidence to believe and think something else. Mm -hmm. So it's going to take real active, continuous work to be able to restructure that. Like even just my own journey, I think this has been like a five-year journey where I can finally look in the mirror and be like, oh, wow, I look cute. Like completely with nothing on, I can tell myself that I look good and that took five years. Like it's not an overnight thing.
0: No, it's true because just even like you go with this fat phobia and you've got all the reinforcers that come out, you know, not just Mm -hmm. even the thoughts out there, but you'll have people of authority Mm. telling you that this is what you need to believe. And I always like people to, I call this your boardroom sometimes in your head of where is this coming from? Like, who do you hear more often telling you this? But sometimes these authority figures aren't just like something my parents may have taught me. Sometimes it's things that my friend has said, a religious leader. It's sometimes Mm -hmm. even what I'm hearing on the news or what I'm hearing around somebody else. So there's a lot of voices out there and we're not schizophrenic, but we've got lots of voices (laughs) out there telling us all the things we should believe we should do. We should, you know, whatever. And so sometimes it's really hard to say, okay, wait, how do I listen to me? And then how do I listen to a one trusted authority? Or how do I find the person that isn't, doesn't view fat phobia is instead very open Mm -hmm. to, you know what, this is your body. This is not a problem. Like we can work with all of that. And Mm -hmm. those are the people you want to start finding is those that are like, you know what, this is, of course, this is how the world might view it, but it's not a problem. Let's instead look at it and say, how do we make sure that you feel safe, okay, and fine in what you're feeling at that moment?
1: Exactly. And it's really that conscious decision-making on your own of just saying like, okay, I'm aware that this is like the framework that we have all been taught to run off of.
0: Mm-hmm. And it
1: could be the person with the most credentials, or it can be the person that you have the most trust in, in your life. Right. Yeah. And understanding that, the core of where they've been taught to like jump their thoughts from. So how do we then find a different trusted expert or a different trusted friend or whatever it is about this particular topic Mm -hmm. so that we can move through this in a lot more of a healthy way, like a mentally healthy way than what we are defaulted to move through the world in. And it's about making sure that that person has the blend of awareness and how that awareness fits in with their role, whether it being your friend, whether it being your doctor, whether it be whatever it is, that's that really important thing. And I think that we're going to talk about some boundaries
0: as you first decide (sighs) this, because I think this is really kind of important because... I'm going to call sometimes these moving from this unconscious to conscious is it's emotionally sometimes a little hard and it's emotionally fragile and it's emotionally kind of exposed wound, basically, because just like you said, it's so easy to go to the guilt and shame because sometimes we look back and say, I can't believe I thought that. I can't believe that I did that for so long and I may have had the best of intentions, but I still did it. And so as we start to move through this and we recognize, we choose what we want to now focus on and we find those that are like, yeah, I can see all that. We do that. You're going to have people in your life come up and say, actually that's not true. Or actually you should just go back to believing what you wanted in the past. Sometimes that person is you mm-hmm. yourself because it's like, well, it's easier to put my head in the sand, for instance, and just pretend that there isn't a problem. And so as you start to do that, I want to give one boundary I think is very, very critical. And then I'm going to ask Alyssa to give some more as well. But one boundary that I think is really, really important is to recognize that it is a fragile conversation and to know your own limit. So when you are talking to somebody and you can feel the emotion start to get up and you're just like, I suddenly don't know if I want to attack them or if I want to agree with them, or I just don't know anymore, but it feels unhinged. <laughs> That's the best way to describe it. <laughs> Be willing to say, I can't, we have to end this conversation. Like, I love you, but this conversation, we're going to just put it on the back burner. We're not going to talk about it right now. I always give the example: you're not supposed to talk about religion and politics at the dining room (laughs) table. And so, the same idea. Perhaps this is a topic that you're like, you know what? I can see that we are not going to be able to talk about this rationally or in a good way, and in feeling not safe in this conversation. So let's table this. Let's just put this aside. We can talk about this later, and just be willing to say, my limit is I can't because it's exposing that wound a little bit too much, and I need to take a step back and regroup, rethink, whatever, just like you do, so that we don't ruin a relationship. changing and the desire for better.
1: And I really appreciate you actually bringing that up because that's something that I feel like I have clients that are on, some of them are in, in the middle of, of this, but usually when they first come to me, they're on two sides of the spectrum. Either this is something that's important to me and I want to make sure that I have these conversations. I just don't feel comfortable doing that. It makes me very nervous. It makes me very uncomfortable. That's mm-hmm. one side. And a lot of times i also have the other side. It's like, I'm coming guns a blazing. I'm ready for this conversation. And I'm like, I'm happy for you, but also remember your limitations. If you are coming into a conversation or even continuing a conversation from that energetic level, The person that you're talking to, that you're trying to change, that you're trying to have them see things from a different perspective, if you are coming from a level 10 energy, they can't hear your words. They can only hear your level 10 energy. And so regardless of what side of the spectrum that you're on or whether you're in between, the most important thing is knowing your own limitations, especially as it may be something that relates to you. Right, So I have a lot more, actually, I'm a bad example because I do this work for a living, but (laughs) (laughs) let's say my friend who is white has a lot more mental stamina to fight for verbally anti-blackness than Mm -hmm. my friend who's black because it is a personal thing relating to them. And they are really talking about the will to live in their existence in a just calm way. Me with fat phobia, I cannot have no conversations with people (laughs) about that that are trying to argue with me about it. Why? Because that's about me. I'm talking about me. And so not feeling this sense of guilt if the conversation has to do with you personally and you can't change this person, you can't do all of these different things, understand that you need to give yourself grace as well. And then for the people who are having conversations that don't have to do with their particular livelihood, knowing your limits when you know that the conversation is no longer productive.
0: You know, I love that too, because I think you hit on a real big point. And that is that it is not my experience. And sometimes I get really passionate. I will be honest. I'll get really passionate Mm -hmm. about some things that I just feel like, this is wrong. We must talk about it. And for somebody else that's like, okay, but Julie, you've never experienced that. Like, This is not like your battle to fight. I think it brings up another thing where, you know, it's right. I can be an advocate, but sometimes my best advocacy is to actually support those that have been through this, that understand it. Let's be honest. I am, I'm very white. And so I don't, Mm -hmm. I understand a very white world. And because of that, I don't think it's fair for me to go out and say, well, I understand now the black thoughts and process. And that is 100%. I think that's lots of wrong all over the place there. But I think it's different if I say, but I desire to understand. I desire to support. I desire to have part of that conversation. And I think it's with any, we're going to call any ism out there, Mm -hmm. or any phobia out there. I think it's the same thing applies. If that is not your lived experience, then I don't feel like you honestly can say that you are the best voice for it. But I think if it's not your lived experience, you want to give voice to those that it is their experience so that they feel like. They can have it and I just support them, whether that is simply being in the background, whether that is just being like high-fiving, like whether it's, (laughs) you know, something there rather than me trying to take my voice over their voice. And I think that is part of that conversation too.
1: I think that is a really important point. And I think it's also important to remember like what the context is. Because I hear that a lot too. Just like, I don't want my voice to be louder than someone else's voice. And I didn't even experience the thing. Like, where? Like, why? (laughs) And also, I'm thinking of just like a boardroom. And the boardroom is just full of men. Mm -hmm. And then there's the one man who is just like, "Mm, this is wrong. There's no one else in that room to give voice to make the change. And even if I, a young dark-skinned Black woman, were in that room... They most likely would not take my word as strongly as they would take Chad's word. Mm-hmm. And in that instance, it's important to understand all of the power dynamics that are at play, right? So if someone has, you know, that exact example, understanding that either A, if Alyssa is speaking, how do I make sure that we're pivoting back to Alyssa? But if Alyssa isn't in the room, then there's no way to passively do this. How do we actively go about either making this change or having these conversations in a way that is productive instead of in a way that is fueled by anger and frustration and all of that, which is, which are normal emotions that you can have. (laughs) But it's about when you're in those conversations, making sure that those emotions aren't doing the speaking. And when you do see them like taking the reins and like driving the car, putting a pause until you can bring back this sense of community or whatever it is that you have with a particular person that you're talking to so that the conversation does become productive and you're taking that active role there. I think this
0: is a very important part of that conversation that that's something that you do, especially is that you help to advocate for essentially that boardroom of all of these men to go in there Mm -hmm. to say, how do I empower these board men?" These, these important, they are really bored. But anyway, (laughs) how do I empower these men essentially for some of these things that can be considered problems that within their own organization without always having to bring in somebody that understands and goes through that? You know, you mentioned Mm -hmm. this, this boardroom and it has these men in there. Then you just think, well, if you had one woman, would that actually even help? Mm -hmm. And then you add race to that and then you add any sort of diversity and it becomes a, well, How do I actually start with the original and bring it to the forefront? And our conversation has really been about noticing our own thoughts and noticing what we want to do. But then the global perspective is really then how do I enact change? Like, how do I do that within the organizations I work in? How do I do that if in my own business? Like, how do I do that, realistically speaking, in my own community? Like, how do I then take that and become a leader and an advocate as I am moving from my own unconscious bias to now my conscious awareness and my conscious thought process? That was a lot of information, but I'd love to know kind of <laughs> your thought process through that. Like, that is what you obviously take your clients through.
1: Going back to your example, that's that first step of being able to be self-aware in that moment, that being able to watch your thoughts, Mm -hmm. right, as you are in situations, as you're in interactions, as you're watching things, all of that, and also... Being very, very honest with yourself about the things that you have not worked through, right? For a lot of us, we may not have worked through any of these isms, even though we desperately want to feel like we have because we just have that one thought of, I know that's not bad, right? But all of these isms show up in so many different ways. So like I think about my own personal story of the two isms that were most prominent in my household were fat phobia and anti-blackness. Both of those are things that were just weaved into the fabric of how I was brought up in my particular household, not even just talking about society. And so whenever, those are the ones that I'm always like paying the closest attention to in how I interact with people, how I think about things, how I move through the world myself, how I decide to show up myself. But that self-awareness piece has to be number one. You have to be really honest with the fact that this is how things are. And so when we notice our thoughts doing a thing, then the step that you took is asking like, hmm, where did this come from? Why is that what's coming up for me? what meaning am I placing on this, right? And getting super deep at its core because usually the, the seed that's planted is such and such is bad. Like we were talking with fat phobia. Fat is bad. That's the seed that's planted. But when I sit here and I go to the store and I try on clothing that is supposedly my size and it just does not look right, the thought that I'm thinking is not fat is bad. The association that I'm making in that moment is fat is ugly because look, I'm trying on the clothes that fit me, that are my size. I've put them on and I look crazy. (laughs) It was just like, (laughs) so that triggers that thought. And that's the core thought that I have to acknowledge and process. So that's like the first core thing. It's this huge self awareness journey that you're only able to allow yourself to go through when you've started to remove that shame and that guilt. I think that that is the
0: big part of it. The guilt mm-hmm. and the chain is what really needs to be addressed with a lot of this so that you can move forward for yourself, move forward for those that you're around, and then create these conversations, this open dialogue, this willingness to be, to be wrong. And I think that's mm-hmm. part of it as well is being willing to be wrong. And I think too often we're not willing to be wrong. We're willing to stick to those biases.
1: Yes, because, you know, another seed that has been planted for us is like, wrong equals bad. Wrong equals stupid. So when we have that association, being wrong becomes a painful experience when in reality, it's just a neutral one. But from the time that we were school age, all the way through adulthood, through our working life, being wrong about something is associated with meaning something about our character. Mm -hmm. And until we break that apart, that's also going to be something that's very hard for us to come to terms with.
0: If anybody could take anything from this conversation, there's so many really, really good things that we can take from this. But I think one of the things is that we want to know that our unconscious bias, perhaps it has been wrong, but it's not a bad thing. It is Mm -hmm. not something that is a defining moment. It is something that is becoming aware. And as she brings it out and we want to think, okay, this is what I thought. This is what this has been a part. I want to think differently. I want to do differently. And just because I did it before, it doesn't mean I was wrong. It just is what it was. Mm -hmm. And now I can change and say, now that is a conscious decision or a conscious bias and it's a conscious way of going through things. Then I can say, then what do I want to do with it? And let's be honest, guys, we're going to make tons of mistakes along the way. Mm-hmm. We're going to do things because we think this is how it has to be, or I am so passionate or whatever. And I will admit, I got really hot-headed about a conversation that I didn't have enough information about, but I just felt like, well, they need to be open to how I think about it. And of mm-hmm. course, <laughs> as I've... Like I had that conversation, I'm like, I should have talked to Alyssa before I had these conversations (laughs) because of course, getting hot-headed about it isn't going to change the conversation. It's not going to change anything. It's really, truly going to make your unconscious biases feel like they are justified to be there.
1: I think that leads into, you know, like that step two of like, what do we do once we've come to terms with that? And to be very, very like honest, like to share a little secret, I actually despise doing unconscious bias trainings like performing them because that's typically where the conversation ends and honestly like look at how I don't even know how long this podcast has been so far (laughs) but like if someone is and this is what corporations do all the time like they bring me on for a one-hour training a one-hour conversation let's talk about unconscious bias that is really just about a self-awareness journey but it's not about changing anything Mm -hmm. And so when we're talking about how do we actually do something different, that's the actual piece. We have to start with our brain, Mm -hmm. but then we have to shift that into action. And I want to remind everyone, you know, we started talking about this conversation, talking about confirmation bias, talking about the triggers that we get every single day to remind us that that thought is true. And so reversing that back on ourselves, we have to really be honest about the impact, the influence, the power that we possess in our everyday lives or in our professional lives and what we may be doing to reinforce these thoughts and these biases. That is going to be the biggest, biggest shift. And that's also going to be another uncomfortable journey because as I mentioned, all of these isms are weaved into the fabric of our society. So whether it be like the best way to build a business is through this blueprint that is tried and true and we have all these case studies and this is actually successful. It can be successful all at once, but it can also still be reinforcing classism. It can still be reinforcing racism. It can still be reinforcing all of these different things. Whoever it is that's telling all these boutique owners to just stop at size large, like... (laughs) That is a thing that is quote unquote successful. Yeah, they're making money, Mm -hmm. but it's still reinforcing fat phobia. And until that person decides to make a different decision or to look at things in a different way, it can even be hiring, right? Like what are we holding as huge weights in terms of the ideal employee and how much of that is based on all of these isms? And how much of it is based on how good this person actually is at this particular job that we need them to do. I don't understand why a college degree is required to be a receptionist. Those two actually don't correlate in the function of the job. But these are the tried and true norms and structures that we continue to follow that reinforces all of these isms. And so what we have to do is acknowledge what those are and make the uncomfortable change to then still do the things that we need to do. We still need to hire people. I'm not saying we're not going to hire them. I'm saying we're going to hire them in a way that is more equitable Mm -hmm. and more inclusive without all of these norms.
0: I think that's such a great way. This whole episode really has been just about that self-awareness been about, I'm aware, and these are the things, these are some actionable things that we can do. Actional things that can help. And just being aware just that isn't enough. It is where do we take that next step? What do we do there? And so I'm hoping that everybody that hears this says, okay, I've got some work to do. And we've given you some very tangible things. And if you are in a corporate environment, or if you are even on your own journey, trying to say, how do I make this a better place? How do I do this work in such a way that makes me aware, makes me move this conversation along even further? Then Alyssa, how would they come and work with you and how would they start that conversation?
1: That is obviously always like going on my website, going through email, but understanding what the work actually is. I feel like that's the little caveat that I want to just like drop for everyone, Um, whether it be entrepreneurs who are like, Hey, can we do one session? Girl, please, we're not going to get anything done. (laughs) (laughs) No change can be made. No overarching change as big as this can be made in 60 minutes. There's no way to say, let's overhaul all the norms of how you have been structuring your business in 60 minutes and also work through all the things that are in your brain. There is absolutely no way. It is a process, just like any type of learning or unlearning journey. And that's what this is. Same thing when it comes to larger corporations and businesses. The whole one singular unconscious bias training will see you next year. That doesn't work. I feel like the sexual harassment training is like the perfect example of that. Every job does that every single year. No one is, there's nothing changing in regards to (laughs) how women are being treated at work. All of these things require series of workshops, internal training and coaching and consulting. So just know that this is work that lights me up and I love to do. And if it's something that you are thinking about too, understand that we're going to be on a journey, it's going to be a great journey, it's gonna be a fun journey, it's gonna be a hard journey, but it's a journey. And as long as you come in with that awareness, we can do all the things and make all the changes that you would like to make.
0: I love it because I think sometimes we think, oh, just one thing and then I'll be better. Mm -hmm. But as our brain shows us, you can't just pick one thing and then just suddenly it's all better. There are caveats. There's different ways of thinking. It is a journey through all the experiences that we want to have. And this has been, to me, just the tip of the iceberg of just that awareness. And if I could have Alyssa talk to you guys all the time, you know, you could go on this journey as well, (laughs) but I know that she's got so much experience and she's got a wonderful container that can help with that. But I do want to stress for everybody. This is the start of the conversation. Let's start it. Let's get it going. Keep talking. Don't be afraid to talk about it because the more we can talk about it, the more we can normalize some of these things, the more progress we can actually see our brains the same. We want to normalize. We want to take that journey so that we can make the change and have the outcomes that we truly want to see.
1: Exactly. Oh my gosh. I have loved this. This is so good. So great.
0: So thank you everybody. And thank you, Alyssa, for being here today. I hope that you will take what you need from this on your own self-awareness journey. And until next time, this is Julie Lamb with what the hell is my brain doing? If you love today's show, I would love for you to take a minute and give a five-star rating and a review. Subscribe and share with those that you know would love to learn more about managing their brains. If you're ready to join me, I want to invite you to coach with me where we uncover more about your brain so that you can have the life and business you dream about. Manage your brain is more than just a thought. It is a possibility. Go to www.julielamcoaching.com to learn more. this is how we do it. Stick with it. See you soon. Have a great day.